Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're discussing pages 145 to 161 of VRT. This is a, a big chunk of text, and it's a new story here in the collection. So I'm excited to get going with this. Brandon, what is on the agenda today? Not as much as has been in the first section of the last two novellas of this collection that we've covered, partially because this first section is exceedingly light. We're being introduced to the types of literary techniques and modes that Wolf is engaging with to tell the story. In a sense, we're being taught how to read what Wolf is writing for us. This story isn't filled with literary illusions. It's filled with some light illusions to the past works, many of which we talked about in the recap. So we're going to be engaging with the epigram. We're going to be talking about what it means, why it's the epigram to this story, and maybe why it's the crowning epigram of the whole trilogy of novellas. Uh, we'll be talking about why Wolf is telling the story that he's telling, what the role of the meta story is, or the frame story is in this section of VRT. And we'll just be talking a little bit about some of the elements that we found in this story. And, and, and lastly, we'll be talking about whether or not any big revelations or epiphanies have come to us about the past two novels from reading the first section of this one. Awesome. I'm, I'm excited to talk more about Carl Chopek. I've, I first read Carl Chopek in high school when I found a copy of uh, Toward the Radical Center, uh, a, which is a, a Carl Chopek reader. Uh, at the used bookstore that my friend and I used to go to when we were in high school. Uh, I picked this up because it has that science fiction play that you mentioned in the, the recap episode, uh, Rossum's Universal Robots, or Robots as actually they would have pronounced it still at that point. And I've never really thought about it since. It's been really since the 90s that I've thought about Carl Chopik, and I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, reading this piece of flash fiction is what we'd call it today. It made me excited to go and find this book, uh, the Toward the Radical Center, uh, which is where I pulled the short story from, from the point of view of a cat, and read more of him. I love this writing. It's fantastic. So I'm just going to read from the point of view of a cat, which really opens this collection. This is translated by Dora Round. This is my man. I am not afraid of him. He is very strong, for he eats a great deal. He is an eater of all things. What are you eating? Give me some. He is not beautiful, for he has no fur. Not having enough saliva, he has to wash himself with water. He meows in a harsh voice and a great deal more than necessary. Sometimes, in his sleep, he purrs. Let me out! I don't know how he has made himself master. Perhaps he has eaten something sublime. He keeps my rooms clean for me. In his paws he carries a sharp black claw, and he scratches with it on white sheets of paper. That is the only game he plays. He sleeps at night instead of by day. He cannot see in the dark. He has no pleasures. He never thinks of blood, never dreams of hunting or fighting. He never sings songs of love. 
often at night when I can hear mysterious and magic voices, when I can see that the darkness is all alive, he sits at the table with his head bent and goes on and on, scratching with his black claw on the white papers. Don't imagine that I am at all interested in you. I'm only listening to the soft whispering of your claw. Sometimes the whispering is silent. The poor doll head does not know how to go on playing. And I am sorry for him, and I meow softly in the sweet and sharp discord. Then my man picks me up and buries his hot face in my fur. At those times, he divines for an instant a glimpse of a higher life. And he sighs with happiness and purrs something which can almost be understood. But don't think that I am at all interested in you. You have warmed me, and now I will go out again and listen to the dark voices. I, I love this story. I think it's incredible. Yeah, this might be the greatest story about what it is to be human that's ever been written. It is phenomenal. I, I'm just blown away by it. And it seems odd to me that this is the epigram of this story. It seems it feels so much more fitting for a story by John V. Marsh. The voice of the cat feels very much like the effect that Wolf is going for in a story by John V. Marsh. This wondering of how this person became a master, and perhaps it's because they ate something sublime, reminds me of the relationship between the shadow children and the abos. There's just a lot here in this story that I feel like Wolf drew on as inspiration for both a story by John V. Marsh and VRT. But Glenn, I just want to ask you if anything jumps out at you and why you think Wolf chose this passage in relation to VRT, but maybe if you think it has any bearing on what came before. Well, I think you're absolutely right to suggest that Wolf had this story in mind the whole time he's been writing uh, The Fifth Head of Cerberus. What I think is so marvelous about this piece is that Chopik is rendering ourselves strange. He is getting us to look at a human being from the perspective of a creature that is not a human. We think humans are beautiful, but the cat does not. The cat thinks that we're hideous because look how little fur we have. We've got bare skin showing. How gross, how disgusting. Something must be wrong with us. Even worse, we use water to wash ourselves instead of our own saliva. How gross is that to use something that didn't come out of your own body to clean your body? I mean, we are disgusting creatures, according to this cat, right? And of course, we do things like, you know, watch a cat use its uh, very flexible spine to lick parts of its body that we could not possibly reach on our own and think, that's pretty gross. Please don't come lick me right now. So we what Chopik is doing here, right, is showing that this can go both ways. And of course, what can be more fitting when you're going to be writing a story about humans and non-humans, humans and sentient aliens interacting with one another, especially when we know that the whole idea here about these aliens is that they can take on the form of a human, that they can appear to be a human being, but that maybe they don't quite know how to act like a human being. But also, I think perhaps more pertinent to what what is going on here, that Wolf is going to think about 
what it is that actually means to be human. Is it just to look like a human being or is there more to it than that? Is it about attitudes and desires and even the way that we perceive the world? And that's what the cat is going through here as well, right? When he criticizes his owner for, uh, for never thinking of blood, for never dreaming of hunting or fighting, for not caterwailing, right? For not singing songs of love, for sleeping uh, at night instead of, uh, instead of during the daytime, for, like, for wasting the night, which is this great time for doing all these other activities. That it's more than even just the form. It is about uh, behaviors, but it is also about about attitudes and even the way that the world is perceived and that that inherently changes based on the nature of our bodies. Yeah, I think Wolf is absolutely investigating the difference a body makes in consciousness. I think this is something like almost a, a critique of the Enlightenment, that that we are not just minds, that our consciousness does not just float apart from our body, which was a big part of a story by John V. Marsh, but that the fact that we're embodied informs so much of how we interact with the world. That's another theme that we've seen developed multiple times, that the abos cannot use tools. They can't interact with the world the same way humans can. Incidentally, this is a theme of, of Kubrick's adaptation of 2001 A Space Odyssey, where we've lost control of our tools. The embodiment is such a crucial feature of this. And I think Wolf is very interested in the way our bodies and our consciousnesses are at constant, have a constant interplay with one another. And we saw this with Mr. Million as well. We had a great discussion about what it means to be a bound or an unbound simulator. Mr. Million's inability to have emotions because he's now in this simulator. Is he still a person or not? Can you be a person when you're divorced from your body, when you're in a machine? Clearly, this is the central theme, right, that Wolf is exploring in the whole novel. I want to say one more thing about Chopek as well, because I know that you've not read Rossum's Universal Robots, but... I just read it again recently since I had this down off the shelf to to read the whole uh, to read the entirety of from the point of view of a cat. I decided to go ahead and read the the play again. And this play is about robots. It says that in the title, but these are actually not machines and they're not made of metal. These are beings that are created from an organic substance that's found on some mysterious island in the Atlantic Ocean that no one had ever found before. The organic substance can be molded to look like whatever you want to make it look like, and someone develops a way to make it look like a person and to make it a useful worker, even though it is not actually a human being, not actually a person. But the plot of the story is about how these robots who are mimicking humans decide that they want to be humans and go out and get souls and eventually replace all the humans on the planet, which seems to be the exact plot of the fifth head of Cerberus. <laughs> right. It's an idea Wolf is extremely interested in. And this is Wolf playing his hand a little bit, letting us know that we should be reading who he's reading to get maximum enjoyment, not only just out of his stories, but to engage in the great tradition of writers that he loves. And I just love it. I do have also one more thing to say, which is that another thing that jumps out at me in this story is that each conscious being is questioning why something should be a master over it. You always hear in this section, 
in the from the point of view of a cat, the cat doesn't understand why it has a master at all. But I think if you talk to any cat owner, you would hear them say that the cat really runs the household. There is a, a real question of recognizing the I don't know if sovereignty is the right word, but the ownership of one's consciousness gives it a certain type of mastery, a certain reason to be allowed to be in the world. And I think we're seeing in this story that for some reason, the abos are not allowed to be in the world any longer. They've lost the competition to decide who gets to be the master, right? If, if that's, if that's the dichotomy that we're going to see throughout this story, and you're right to point to that being something that is exhibited in all of the stories so far is this master slave relationship or subordinate and superior. Uh, we have colonists who are subjugating other colonists who subjugated these native inhabitants already. All of these things are here in the story. And you're right that, of course, this is a relationship that we all have with our pets, but it is not actually as clear as we think it is. I mean, frankly, cats have it great. They don't have to go to work. Uh, they just get food provided for them. They get cleaned up after. They get toys given to them. They get you know cool towers provided to them. I, I want someone to make me a cool play tower. No one's ever done that, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. My dream for a long time is just to become a cat somehow. Uh, it's been it's been a challenging road. Well, I, I, maybe we should go back and read Sonia Crane, Wesselman, and Kitty again. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there's enough cautionary tales there in the history of science fiction literature. <laughs> you know that 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 information about the the war between the French and English is part of a, of a series of revelations or maybe epiphanies that Wolf is trying to deploy. I know we said we talk about this last, but. We're going in any order I want right now for this discussion. You're the master. Yeah. Um, so that was something that really jumped out to me as like an epiphany. Okay, there was this absolutely brutal war. And since these stories are ostensibly dealing with something like post-colonialism, I just want to ask you, Glenn, what do you think Wolf is saying about the brutality and gruesome nature of the conflict between the French and English why, if you have this massive planet, should a conflict emerge at all? And why with such violence? Well, this has historical analogs. I mean, we are recording this right now in what was, of course, Native American territory and then Dutch territory and then violently became English territory. We should say it violently became Dutch territory as well. Uh, the whole history of European colonialism in the Americas, in Australia and New Zealand, in Africa, and even in parts of Asia is about one group of settlers displacing native people and then another group of settlers uh, decades, sometimes even a, a century or more later, coming and displacing those uh, original settlers, almost always violently. So I think that that's the historical analog that Wolf is thinking about here. And, and there is even a direct historical analog to English-speaking settlers essentially conquered this French colony in North America and drove out many of the indigenous French speakers uh, from a region called Acadia, 
those people then relocated to another French colony in North America, uh, in Louisiana, and they became the the Cajun population in Louisiana. So there's a, an even a direct analog there. And of course, when we were going through the the first novella, the fifth head of Cerberus novella, uh, to me, I was constantly thinking of this as the analog of of New Orleans, which uh, peacefully became under the control of of English of an English speaking government, but retained all of this pre existing French culture. I think we see here that there was more violence in this episode than there was in the historical uh, American takeover of New Orleans, though we we are going to get more details about what has transpired in some of the later sections. So I'll look forward to revisiting that analog. But I do think just to get to the heart of your question that 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 Wolf wants to show that it is not just that colonizers are violent to the indigenous inhabitants, but that the whole drive to go have colonies is an inherently competitive and therefore potentially violent enterprise that you see yourself as a settler in competition with other settlers as much as you are in competition with any natives who might be there and that the whole process really dehumanizes everybody that it turns everyone into mechanisms of of violence more than we are anything else it seems as though there's no thing too small to fight a war over. You have a whole planet. You have We have evidence in VRT of it not being especially populated, of nobody really competing to build better places. No trappings of capitalism really present on this planet. Certainly universal health care is present. The woman gets a free arm um, perhaps from a farmer we don't we would never imagine a, a kind of simple solution for a rural farmer in america for you know a farm accident and what it might do to the to the farmer and his family and his crop instead he's rewarded for it. it's almost like the story of of job here where he loses you know something precious to him and gets it repaid double or you know job it's often tenfold that God repays Job for his losses at the end of the story, that this farmer gets another wife, and the people who are against that are the priests. So there's just this hilarious conflict in that story. We know that there is a Catholic presence on St. Anne, that they were part of the people who came over with one of the waves of settlers. But I think you're absolutely right to point out, and I love that you brought up the point that that it is that colonialism and this idea of colonizing a place is inherently violent. You don't do this without being ready to do violence. No matter how large the planet is, for some reason they're going to the same place and deciding to compete over territory that's been settled, though this planet is known for its vast, lush, Meadow mirrors. And it's something that really troubles me as I read this story is the descriptions of the brutality of this violence when they could have just gone and settled. And I have the sense that Frenchman's Landing, although the name is Frenchman's Landing, I, I ha- and there are French and there are French speaking people there. The sense that I have is that this was a rural place, that there were farmsteads in this area by the French speakers, but that the city of Frenchman's Landing is actually an English speaking city. We get talk from Dr. Hagsmith about how it's 
how 20 years ago they thought that they were creating a metropolis. It seems to me that the sacred trees have only recently been chopped down. You know, you brought this up in the recap episode about what it says that people chopped down the trees of this place that they regard as sacred. But I actually think that they chopped these down long after they think the Abos or the Anis are are all gone, and that it is the English-speaking people, the second wave of colonists, not the first wave of colonists who decide to do that. Uh, so it seems that there is space for new cities to be built on this planet. Why could you have not done this peacefully, right? Perhaps they could have, but I think that what we see is that it's not just about making space. It's not just about having living room or Lebensraum for everybody. It's about having political power. It's about who dominates the planet. It's about who is the master, the French speakers or the English speakers. And there's definitely some fan fiction to be written here about this war, about what is going on on the English-speaking ships when they get into orbit, or maybe even before they leave Earth. They must have left Earth with this plan in mind, with this idea already that they weren't merely going to go find an empty part of some continent and make new places to live, that they predict that if they do that at some point in the future, there's going to be a war for dominance. So why not do that now while we have spaceships in orbit and can really dominate the whole planet? I, I would read that that fan fiction for sure. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy to think about that somebody living on the same planet as another I don't know, population, the, another culture that sees people of that culture go, who knows why we're spreading to the stars? I mean, that's another question that's not present here is why Earth is colonizing all these planets and why the colonies are doing so poorly. Why humanity is failing, in a sense, to really colonize the the stars. And I think we're seeing here part of it is because they bring their cosmological problems with them, for lack of a better word, their spiritual problems with them, and that it, that is itself a destructive presence, that you'll, you're, you're never going to escape that. I think that's one of the themes of these stories. But it's only been 200 years you've seen the annihilation of one native species on this planet in at least a century take place, and then you see the displacement mutilation and brutal treatment of the first same species population take place in in that time it seems almost unthinkable that people would go to the stars 80 years after their forebearers left with the idea of going to war with them that is not our optimistic elon musk version of the future that we are living in today I think there is something of the Cold War mentality to this story. I mean, we should keep in mind that Wolf is writing this in the, the late 60s, the first novella, the, the other two in the early 70s. We've seen already how much the Cold War is influencing Wolf's worldview, but also the, the things that Wolf is interested in exploring about humanity. So Wolf is writing in this zeitgeist of an imperial competition between two ideologically charged empires, right, competing for global dominance. So I think, you know, 50 years ago, this might have seemed like a more realistic future for human beings than it strikes us today in 2018, uh, though it may also just be that we're naive and that if colonialism is a thing that we are doing, that it will ignite again this type of competition that 
we saw among Europeans in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. I think he's saying, like, this is a cycle of humanity. This is the, you know, era, the age in Hegelian terms that we are living in. And he doesn't really see an end to it. He Maybe this is a total rejection of Hegelianism, that there is no golden age that we are moving towards, but we are always going to be stuck in this conflict. And people have become more brutal and, and perhaps their solution has been to get it out of the way quicker so that it doesn't have to come to pass in the future. They don't have an après-moi attitude. They have a, we'll just do it first and then see what shakes out. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty cold-hearted and, and calculating. It's a, there's a real sense of, of Bismarckian realpolitik, I think, to what really prompts this war here. I think the next thing we should really do here is talk about what Wolf is doing with this story, with the style of story he's telling, with the frame story, why he's putting us in the position of the military officer, and what the frame story is really meant to be about, what we're going to predict we can draw out of the frame story as we read through it. My, my thoughts are that Wolf is using this frame story, this nested story, one, because it's a classic type of colonial fiction, uh, but two, to put us in the seat of an objective third-party observer, to make us think we're observing these documents and that we're the semi-indifferent to them because we have a life to live beyond this box of documents that we get. As I said in our last episode, this is one of my favorite tropes of all time, the the kind of indifferent eye of the third-party observer, especially in the weary bureaucrat or this crass military officer. It's an uncomfortable seat to be in, I think, that Wolf puts us in, in the point of view of this despicable character that we get so far. I just want to ask you, Glenn, why do you think Wolf is doing this? Why this position of objectivity? Why the point of view of this officer and what do you think we're going to get out of this frame story or is it just that this is the only way wolf could think to tell the story he wanted to tell let me let me reinterpret your question a little bit and and maybe try to imagine some of the ways that wolf might have told this story some of the different ways that wolf might have told this story he could have just given us this collection of documents in the same order that we're getting them just nakedly, just without any of the frame device. There, this would be perhaps something like how House of Leaves operates, for example. And we wouldn't necessarily need the frame device, and we could still be asking the same questions. Uh, you know, what's what's going on here? Are these things uh, out of order? What's Or what is the narrative order of these uh, different parts of the, the story? How do these artifacts relate to one another? But giving us the the frame story, right? This this perspective from the officer whose job it is to evaluate these artifacts, these texts, to decide something very specific, makes that our job as well as a reader. And it gives us this focus, right? We know that this officer is reading through these documents to determine if Dr. Marsh is actually from Earth, which is a question that was raised by our narrator in the fifth head of Cerberus in the first novella. 
And so now that we know that that's explicitly the question that the officer is going to these texts for, it's what we can be going to them for as well. And so Wolf gives us this guidance here of, of at least one question that he wants us to be paying attention to. But the framing device also does a number of other things. I mean, we get some great world building out of the, the frame device. But there is also this, this throwaway passage in which we learn that there are two types of prisoners in this prison, uh, criminal prisoners and political prisoners. And I have to suspect that we are going to see that come back, that we're going to see that that difference, that dichotomy or that relationship between them is going to become important as we come to understand why Dr. Marsh is in a prison on San Croix when the last time that we left him, he was uh, enjoying a very pleasant evening at uh, Port Mimizan's best brothel. But I think everything that I've just said is a real surface level answer to your question. So I'm, I'm interested in, in, in what things you see Wolf doing here and why you think he's doing them. At this point, I'm a little bit puzzled, though I have some hunches. There are a number of elements of the frame story that really jump out at me. The first is just the presence of the slave, the description of which is the description of the slave's that we saw in Port Mimizan. And it gives us the sense that, you, as you said in world building, that maybe all of the slaves on St. Croix are provided by Maitre, by the Maison du Chien, and that they're all clones of number five. It's that description of the face that calls to mind that praying mantis or the other slaves uh, of Mr. Million seeking the faces in the slave market, looking kind of just watching the slave trade take place. Maybe as he sees clones of himself being traded. We also get the sense that St. Croix as a whole has a, has a much more diverse population. We have the gypsy tribes and the, and the criminals and the outlaws. As you say, Glenn, this is not taking place on in Port Mimizan, just on St. Croix in general on another Harbor. And so we have no reason to believe that this military officer is a clone in any way of number five, but that that maybe is just a, a feature of Port Mimizan. We also see the French word for uh, master being used by the slave. He calls him maitre. I don't think that's an accident. I think, again, this is an explicit reference to the fact that he is a clone of number five and is shipped out to you know, the, the far reaches of the planet. And it's just all of this world building taking place. Wolf is... Wolf needs to have a person on San Croix examining this, examining these documents and the, these various forms of media to tie us back into the type of world that Fifth had took place in so we can tie the stories together. He has the uh, kind of uh, second layer story taking place on St. Anne while the frame story is taking place on San Croix. I think Wolf also wants us to be uncomfortable with the types of stories he's ultimately telling in this trilogy of novellas and not to just read them passively. By putting us in the in the perspective of such a cruel and powerful person who's also not of especially high rank, he's asking us to maybe question our assumptions about these places in general, that this is not the optimistic sci-fi, you know, Jetson's future that we've all been promised, but that that if humanity does not find that third way, as we've brought up in, in past podcasts, 
that it is destined to repeat its mistakes no matter where it goes and no matter who's in charge. But I also get the sense that he's read a lot of Graham Greene and just picked up some tropes of this type of story, which I'm a huge Graham Greene fan, so I enjoy the heck out of it. Yeah, and you know, we should say, of course, that one of one of Graham Greene's greatest novels, The Quiet American, is about English speaking colonialists taking over a, a French colony in Asia. It's a it's about the beginning of the Vietnam War. The American involvement in the Vietnam War, which is a very long colonial war that the French were losing and the Americans uh, took over, uh, that very much is informing, I think, the world that we're seeing here finally in VRT. I think that's a really great observation. Also, I'm really glad that you pointed out the what we can infer of the rank of this officer. If the major has priority over everyone's favorite prostitute, then I think we can infer, right, that this officer is a lower rank than major. So he's a captain. And this guy feels to me a lot like the captain from Operation Ares. I mean, I think if, if, any, if, if there's any cloning going on in this part of the story, it is that. It is that he is the clone of that character from Operation Ares. I think we're going to see even more of that as we go on, and I'm looking forward to it. But on the note of cloning, I want to push you on this question about this particular slave that we see here, the slave of this officer as being one of these number five or, or Mr. Million clones. I mean, you say that you see a connection there and that he's having the slave call him Maitre, but I mean, that just means master. That is what a French speaking slave would call his, his owner it's not really a name for the brothel keeper of the maison du chien he is called that there because in that context he is the slave owner all of the people who are prostitutes there are his slaves so they also have to call him master so i don't know that there's any linguistic parallel there other than that's the word that you call the person who owns you on this planet but i do also want to point out that the father of number five the father of the narrator of the fifth head of cerberus only ever made 50 clones so they can't, all the slaves on this planet cannot actually be clones that that person made. We might extrapolate that he's the third incarnation of this and that the previous two made more. But he talks about how hard it is to do this. Uh, 50 was, in fact, even him largely practicing so that he could perfect his skill. So I think the idea that all of the slaves, of which there must be literally millions on this planet, were grown in the lab in the basement of the Maison du Chien is uh, not likely to be true. Two fair points, but I will quibble back with you <laughs> as I do. You're absolutely right. The linguistic argument is is weak and it's poor. I only mention it to say that I think Wolf, I think Wolf uses the word to jog our memory of Fifth Head of Cerberus and that there's some literary game afoot there in the specific use of that word especially in relation to prostitution and uh, what's going on there. It's not a good argument. It's the description of the the slave as a high-shouldered, sharp-chinned man with a shock of dark hair, which is the description of the kind of that, that those praying mantis features that we get of the forearmed man. It is the description we get similarly of number five's father and of number five himself. I think you're absolutely right to say that not all slaves on the planet 
are clones of of Mr. Million or number five or his father or his grandfather, uh, that would be impossible. Uh, We see Mr. Million at the slave market searching the faces for recognition, which would indicate to us that not every face is the face is his own face, the planetary face, as it's called. But to me, this description and the, the kind of close proximity of Maitra and prostitution really call to mind what we get of the description of the father and fifth head of number five himself and of the four-armed man who was clearly an exper- experimental clone of the father. So at least this slave is, and Wolf is drawing the presence of this slave to the planet of San Croix, I think, to us in a very, um, if it's not important, it's meant to get us to be thinking about Fifth Head in some way as the story progresses. Yeah, I think that's just fascinating, the, just the, what you have inferred from this description. I'll actually just read it. It's, it's on page 145. It's, you know, the third paragraph after the, the epigram. Uh, the slave, a high-shouldered, sharp-chinned man with a shock of dark hair. And I think, I think what you've seen there, you, you, that, that you have inferred this as being a, a parallel with, with the descriptions that we get of, of Maitre as being hawkish, uh, which is interesting to me because my assumption of what it means for a person to be hawk-faced, as he's described, is to have a big nose, not necessarily a sharp chin. I think, I mean, yeah, I think it's sharp features in general. And, and to me, when you combine that with the praying mantis-like face of the forearmed man, I think you're seeing somebody with very sharp features. We know he's kind of high-shouldered and that he has dark hair. So that's how I'm making that connection. Yeah, I'm really fascinated by that by that inference and by that connection. I would love to know what what other listeners uh, have to say about that. If that's an inference that they made as well, or perhaps I don't, or perhaps I have totally misunderstood what it means for someone to look like uh, like a hawk. Uh, I would love to hear more about this. Yeah, I I don't know that it's crucial for understanding the story or the meaning of the story. I just think it's part of the game Wolf is playing to draw us into thinking about Fifth Head because it's easy to draw us into a story with the the narrative that's taking place within the frame narrative. To me, it's a, a deployment of technique more than a crucial element. But I think it's a really important part of the style that Wolf has chosen to write in, that the frame story is meant to get us to think and reflect on what was going on in Fifth Head and the cruelty and brutality of that world while the nested narrative is telling us about the world of a story by John V. Marsh. And all of these details absolutely serve to let us know that we are back on San Croix long before the text tells us that we're back on San Croix. It absolutely feels like that same society, and it is because of all of these markers and all of these connections. Well, I'm sure there's much more to say about this frame story, and there will be much more to say as we continue, as it continues to develop. So the last question I suppose we're left with is about the incomplete, imperfect, anecdotal evidence we get of the Annies from people who have been on St. Anne for a little while, from the people who are interested in its history, Dr. Hagsmith, from Mary Blunt, uh, from the two kind of unnamed characters, that Wolf is already sort of 
confusing the lines between myth and reality. And I wonder if he's commenting on the way anthropologists work, the way they uncover data, where they start from in order to get to a thesis, or if he's suggesting, as Dr. Hagsmith says, that the abos exist as much as they ever did, which to me I read as this type of story always exists in the minds of people who live in the countryside of why your socks go missing and why the milk gets drank that you leave out on the porch and, you know, why you shouldn't venture too deep into the woods. And, you know, if your eight year old doesn't want to live on a farm and becomes depressed, why it's been exchanged with a changeling, you know, or has gotten rabies or something like that. These, these folk explanations for things that our civilization has given names to and, in this, it's the good people that he refers to as the direct parallel for the Ennies. So I just want to know what you make of that. We talked a little bit about Mary Blunt's retelling of the story, reshaping it, maybe confabulating elements of it to cope with her father's brutal killing of her friends. But I'm just wondering if you see evidence of this anywhere else and, and if Wolf is actually trying to get us to call into question the existence of these Annies, or if this is just uh, a mode of storytelling he's engaging with. Well, I'll say that, that right now, as far as we've gotten into this novel, into the entirety of uh, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, I'm on the fence about the actual existence of Abos or, or, or the Annies. I'm not convinced that they are or ever were real. The only bits of evidence that we've seen of them is that there are some uh, stone artifacts in uh, a, a case in the library in Port Mimizan, and that some of these people that Dr. Marsh is talking to have stories about them. Uh, we knew that people had stories about them from uh, what we learn about Vale's hypothesis in the uh, Fifth Head of Cerberus as well. But there also, when we're learning about Vale's hypothesis and about the Annie's, the notion that they could change their shape is regarded as being uh, just stories that, that people tell, that there is no actual evidence to indicate that such a thing is possible. No, There's no video recordings or any other type of visual evidence that that's a thing that could happen. So I, I do think that Wolf is bringing up the the notion here of the good people, of fairies and elves and leprechauns and gnomes and trolls, uh, to make that connection. Because I do think there are very few people on our planet, in our society, who really believe that there are other sentient creatures living in Ireland or England or Scotland or Scandinavia who have simply remained out of sight of, of Homo sapiens for thousands of years um, or, or managed to, but, but went extinct and someday we'll actually find archaeological remains of their existence and we'll be able to use our advanced uh, scientific techniques to extract their DNA and determine that in fact there was a species of, of, of small hominids uh, living you know, in, in remote parts of Scotland uh, this whole time and that we should have taken these legends seriously. I, I don't think Wolf himself believes that that's something that we're ever going to find out. I think that Wolf is poking a little bit of fun actually at people who think that that's likely to be true. And I do think that he is invoking that here as a, a wink to the reader that maybe we should not just assume that because we're in a speculative fiction story, 
the speculative element that people are talking about that that we as readers have not observed directly is necessarily true. It's perhaps poking fun at our own gullibility as SF readers a little bit. That's an excellent point. The fact that he's following all of this information up after he's written a story by John V. Marsh, which the whole question of that is, what does he mean by a story? Is this derived from evidence or is it really just a story derived from these folk tales and local doctors and rural people who always have these types of stories about, you know, Caucasoid pygmies <laughs> running around the countryside. Um, that what we should be taking away from this story isn't the search for abos, but really just man's inhumanity to man. And we can see already, even in just this first section, that elements that we read first in a story by John V. Marsh are showing up here in this story. But if we think about the actual timeline of Dr. Marsh and then also the artifact that is this story, what we're really seeing is Dr. Marsh hearing the stories that then later he writes in this other piece that we've already read. We'll talk more explicitly about the metatextuality of this as it goes on as we get more evidence. But right now, this to me very much feels like a, uh, like a, a Kaiser Scherze reveal and not uh, an affirmation that the things we saw in a story by John V. Marsh were true. I think we're actually seeing affirmation that they're not true. One more thing I want to say on this topic, though, I, I didn't make any big deal out of this name in the, the recap, though I made a big deal out of other names. Uh, Dr. Hagsmith who claims to be an amateur folklorist. Uh, this strikes me as a pretty hilarious name. Uh, there might be some other etymology to this name that I'm not aware of, but Hag Smith, he's a smith who makes hags, which is a word for witches. This to me seems like Wolf is making a joke again about what folklorists do. They're not the people who study witches. They're the people who make up witches. Witches exist because People have written stories about them. There, there, there were not ever any actual witches. There were never women out practicing magic or uh, baking little kids into pies or any of the other things that witches do. Uh, Hagsmith, as a folklorist, is the manufacturer of these stories, not merely the, the cataloger of them. Yeah, Wolf is definitely having fun with the names in this story in a way that's far more playful than we've seen in Fifth Head and a story by John V. Marsh. This is, so far, just kind of a fun story that's trying to bring everything together, which makes me extremely excited to continue reading it and covering it for the podcast. But that's going to do it for this one. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And you can support the show by becoming a patron on Patreon. Head over to the Clay Temple Forum and let us know what you thought about our discussion. Is the slave a number five clone? Does it matter? Uh, there's, there's a lot of questions we brought up, though I do think this section was exceptionally light for the first section of the novellas we've covered so far. Still, I'd love to hear what you've discovered that we've missed. So let us know in the forums. Next time, we'll continue by reading pages 161 to 174 of the 1994 Orb Edition. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>